everybody and welcome to the classroom hello this week we Today, are we are talking <laughs> you want to go i'm not sure which one of our mics uh like might have overlapped there uh but uh I'll take it here. Uh, hello. Today we are talking about uh, the fourth book in the Heroes of Olympus series, uh, House of Hades. Uh, and I will all just say up front, um, I think this is my favorite one so far, at, at the very least out of the House of Hades. I think it's I think it's very fun. I think there are very few things that did not, that like maybe lost my attention. Uh, as of previous books, I thought there were some fun things, some jabs at... Uh, previous um parts of the books that was fun to me and interesting some issues which we will talk on later but overall very nice i, I liked it quite a bit i will say this um i personally and i've had this kind of mindset for a while and we will definitely talk about it a little bit next week too that this book would have made a better ending than what blood of olympus will um mm. because this this book we see the conclusion of the the like major thing that that we got left on last book which is percy and annabeth making it back um and they they've temporarily seemed to solve part of the quest anyway um so yeah i this one it, it is a good book we get all seven narrators um which are all of these seven mm-hmm. which is the only book that does that and it's also kind of neat um it's the only book in the series that we have had every narrator narrate before um which is true, like, yeah. fun so um, you you want to go ahead and, and take off on the summary uh yeah um so uh how we sort of start this off uh is that they are sort of trying to figure out how much time they have after uh both like percy and annabeth have sort of disappeared uh, their best guess is that they uh, that they just need to meet up and try to get as close as they can to uh, where the doors of death are and just hope and pray that the fates sort of align them uh, reaching near the same time. Um, so they, they sort of board up on the Argo and start like chasing off with uh, the new technology that they got, such as the uh, Archimedes sphere, I believe it was. Um Along the way, uh, Hazel meets Hecate, the uh, goddess of magic, and she sort of teaches uh, teaches her and gives her a little bit of insight about being able to control and shape the mist, so she can add like a little tool to her tool belt there, since she's the uh, since she can sort of see through the veil of life and death more than others. She's better uh, able to manipulate it. Um, and then we sort of pop back over to. Uh, how uh, Percy and Annabeth are faring down in Tartarus. Well, and then from there, of course, we get we get all of their beginning half of Tartarus. We get to see, of course, they're falling, them finally making it to the bottom, realizing that Tartarus is trying to kill them actively, um, which is really messed up. They have to drink like the the wa- the fire, the fire water, right, um, to keep them alive because it like runs through the underworld. And we've got, I'm trying to think like this, like, like the fast forward version of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a, a handful of like offshoot battles, um, less so than what we've seen in the last books. A lot of the kind of offshoot storylines all portay, like pertain to the main plot here, which is them trying to make it to 
the House of Hades. Um, mm-hmm. So we see, I think one of the first ones is Frank, Hazel, and Nico all go off to to obtain like the antidote to the poison that they will have to drink to get into the House of Hades. Um, mm-hmm. Nico becomes a cornstalk. Uh, Hazel's almost killed. Frank goes ballistic, gets his blessing from Ares, grows like another three inches and like beefs <laughs> up, which is like terrifying because Frank is already significantly taller than every other character we have in canon. And then he just gets bigger. <laughs> um, and then we've got Nico and Jason's battle with Cupid um, in which Nico gets outed. Um, we get trying to think of the other ones here too. Um, we go back to Percy and Annabeth and Tartarus. Uh, Percy. Uh, yeah, Percy and Annabeth met up with uh, uh, Iaptus, also known as Bob, who is from a, uh, if you are like me and had, did not read these short stories, he is from one of those. So if you were lost, you did not just black out part of the previous books. He's a character that you do not know. Uh, some suffice to say he is a titan that lost his memories and has been named Bob and now works as a janitor. It, actually, fun little, I can give the anecdote about that. So basically, uh, the short story goes, uh, Percy, Nico, and Talia, this is set before the Battle of Manhattan, maybe, I think. Either before the Battle of Manhattan or right after, right before Percy disappears. Uh, they, go, they have to go down to the underworld to like solve some sort of problem. Um, and it ends them fighting uh, Bob. They push him into the River of Memory. Of course, his memory gets erased. He comes back out. He doesn't know who he is. So Nico convinces Hades to give him a job as a janitor in the underworld. They rename him Bob. They tell him that he is a good person, that he just made wrong decisions. And then that sets you up for where he is in the story. And Bob helps Percy and Annabeth through most of Tartarus. Um, also, the little cubs, uh, the little saber-toothed tiger cubs. Oh, small Bob. Small Bob is one of my favorite side characters. I love Small Bob. Um, and then I'm trying to think. They, of course, they make it towards the end. They meet up with a handful of other kind of beings in Tartarus. They have a lot of battles with other, um, with other monsters, with other gods. Uh, we see Percy go a little crazy um, and manipulate poison, um, which like scares Annabeth, which is like reasonable. Um, they meet up with another Titan, I believe, or he might be a, a minor god. But he um, feeds Percy and Annabeth, helps them get to the end of Tartarus. When they get to the doors, they realize that they have to cut the chains to separate the elevator. They get 12 minutes to ride up. They just have to stay alive long enough, which is difficult to stay alive that long. Um, Bob sacrifices himself. They make it up. Uh, same time, the the rest of the seven make it to the doors of um, doors of death, and on the other side in the um, house of Hades, they're fighting against a couple giants. Nico manages, or sorry, Leo manages to throw a screwdriver perfectly to hit this button, uh, and bada bam, everybody is kind of safe, not safe, but they manage to win the battle, free them. Oh, and uh, somewhere in the middle of all that. Leo goes to um, Calypso's island and comes back and then promises her that he'll be back. And I think uh, that's everything. Yes. Uh, there was uh, one thing we I just feel like it's important to add in there. At some point, they meet um, 
the they meet one of the only like good giants that was created which is um i forget his name but he is the opposite of Ares, and because of that he is almost entirely pacifistic um the one thing he killed was a creation of uh of gia's that like she really did not want him to kill and thus his punishment was to kill it every single day in tartarus forever uh so metal there but he ends up helping them out so the this book has like a sort of like mini theme not uh about like do not like do not put everybody into camps of good or bad because no matter what there is always an exception right um and that's true and i really and i know giants were created specifically to be anti-gods um and i just love to see the anti the anti-gods to the gods that we aren't necessarily fans of it's very sweet um, so mm-hmm. I think that leads us to hop right into our themes, which is crazy. We never make it to themes this quick, but we will continue. Um, so the, the first theme I have down here is love and we see it in different places and different ways. Um, and some of these phrasings are a little weird. I'm just trying to like spitball them, but we see kind of the, the power of love which sounds very gross but um, power of love. <laughs> but we see that it it is there first off we get an i love you which is the first i love you between percy and annabeth in the entire series from oh. annabeth as they are plummeting to their death she was fully ready for her last words to be i love you which is like very sweet but we see that it is their kind of like love for each other that keeps them alive in Tartarus. Um, specifically, that first scene we get when um, Percy manipulates the river to prevent them from dying. Um, the river is trying to get each, both of them to die. It is telling them, stop kicking, stop swimming, you don't matter. You know, your usual hubbaloo. And, um, and Anna- That's what goes through my head every day when I wake up. <laughs> right, right, right but it's Percy grabbing Annabeth that pulls her out of it. And it is her talking to Percy that pulls him out of it. So it's very like, and they say multiple times that they would have already been dead if it hadn't been for the other one being there with them. Um, And I mean, throughout it, there was a lot of them just saving each other. Of course they would do it anyway, because they're both very like, ah, save other, save everybody else, not yourself people. But specifically, the scene with the, the battle between uh, when Percy uses the poison against the goddess of misery is the middle, like this, he does, he goes this extra mile because she is direct, directly targeting Annabeth. But also, it is so out of character for Percy that he just snaps like that it is it is like a truly like when i was reading it um and Haley expressed the same thing uh it was just like oh oh this is yikes like it it, it was almost as if you're like watching one of those like horror movies it's like okay this feels a little much right but but like it, i think that is even even so i think it was like kind of brutal 
it is just well enough that it makes uh, sense, maybe not for Percy, but it shows how much he's changing and how much he's going through to try to protect Annabeth to the point where he does something that kind of upsets her. But we see that, like I, like I said a second ago, it's their love for each other that keeps them through Tartarus. But at the same time, Percy stops when he notices how distressed Annabeth is after witnessing him do that. Like he, and he stops and he apologizes to her and he feels guilty. But I, I believe there's a line in the text where he says, I would do it again because I had, like, I need to keep her safe. Mm-hmm. And that's an, a sentiment we've seen from Percy in the past too, like all the way back in Titan's Curse, back in the third book of the last series. Um, so it's very on, on brand for Percy, but also in a completely different Um, but uh another place we kind of see love and in a less dramatic sense drastic sense um, yeah that's probably better yeah yeah is this platonic love between jason and reyna but in the scene where jason is dreaming uh, uh, or seeing the dream of um reyna at camp half-blood he's witnessing what um rachel elizabeth there and grover going up and talking to reyna and octavian about you know what their options are um that annabeth sent a note for them or for reyna to end up you know to meet them for the um for the statue of athena in Mm -hmm. greece um which was very cool the way they did that like i thought that was fun but they um, found like the altar that uh, all the food that they sacrifice to the gods goes to, uh, which feels wasteful. Like, the gods aren't getting that. Well, it's like, Hermes just... specifically, uh, which is okay. also, which doesn't help because he's got the most kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the food goes down there. So he's like, okay, I guess we'll burn something in this offering thing and see if it goes to the camp. And it does. Right. Uh, but we see that entire time, Jason is making comments about like, Reyna's body language, how she's kind of holding herself. There's a line where he says, she looks tired. Nobody else would notice it. But, but you know, Jason had worked with her long enough to know what it looks like when mm-hmm. she's exhausted. And you're reminded that they are friends. They were friends before he left. And he says that even though he was never in love with her, he knows her. Um, um, it's also Jason's idea to leave the note for Reyna um, in Dalmatia. And there's just many instances we see specifically in that cluster of chapters Jason is narrating that he just talks about how much he knows knows Reyna and knows he can see what she is going through through this dream like he knows what she's thinking and I don't know necessarily it, it ties into the platonic love because like I said they acknowledge that they're friends or he acknowledges that they were close but I don't know that they're okay so Obviously, their love is like the the relationship that Jason and Reyna have expresses this platonic love. But I also think it's like the kind of like mutual respect and like knowing that comes with working with somebody. Not working with somebody, that's the wrong way. But like being held to a higher standard with somebody. I don't, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this and it makes sense. They have went through so much crap together that it is impossible for them not to be close. Mm-hmm. and jason obviously 
and I think this is another big thing on Jason's character. We can touch on a little bit later. He admits that he feels guilty about kind of leaning towards Camp Half-Blood because he doesn't want to hurt Reyna. Yeah, I... It's... It's a very... It's a very, like... I'm not sure if weird is the right word to describe the dynamic, um, but it's it's kind of hard to sort of just put into just one camp, but I think that's probably the best way to get about it, get, right. get about doing it. Um, and of course we see love in a different kind of beginning way with with leo when he's on calypso's island um because it's very sweet calypso just goes you're not the usual kind of hero i get here i am not falling in love with you this is going to be easy this is the first time the gods have sent me one that i'm not going to fall in love with and then leo is like i really like when you talk to me when you're mean to me oh my god (laughs) oh no, he was he Leo was trying very hard as well not to fall in love with Calypso, uh, but was noticing like every time she was like, Okay, I'll help you with the machines. He was just like, Huh, okay, gonna file that one away for later. Like, Tuck it um, back here. Um, but yeah, I I liked that. I'll I'll come on on that scene now. Uh I liked it quite a lot uh i thought it was both fun that it sort of parodied uh how the last interaction we had with calypso was i also didn't see it coming necessarily uh at first uh and i only i only really processed it after i was like why is ogigia sound for oh okay i see uh well and um, i think yeah and it also ended yeah it's fine uh it also ends with like love in it and possibly a happy ending i am going to firmly predict slash say that it's gonna end up okay just because i want to see an auto repair shop that also sells stew like (laughs) if i'm gonna have to wait at the mechanics for them to like fix my catalytic converter or give me a new something or uh, other I might as well eat some nice stew while I'm waiting. <laughs> well, and I Instead one of, just of my stale peanuts. <laughs> one of my favorite things about kind of first off, Calypso is very like I'm not gonna do it, and then she does really nice things for him. He's like, she's like, mm, he lit his clothes on fire. Here's a pair of ones that won't set on fire. This is what you get here. Like she's like, I don't know. It just it's very sweet. Um, and she just goes about everything like like i said their whole kind of blossoming kind of falling in love thing because of course nobody can leave her island until she falls in love with them um leo kind of does not necessarily but he kind of does um but he ends it on the promise that he is going to return to her that he is going to make sure he gets back to her because she deserves something better than this. He is going to be the one to break her curse. And it's very sweet. I don't know what else to use there. Um, <laughs> they're, okay, I'm gonna be honest too. They're like developing like relationship feels really organic, even though like none of the situations leading up to it would be. Yeah, that, that's fair, I'd say. Like it, it's very, it's very sweet. Um, I, I like it. I like it a lot. And of course, we see the incarnation of love in this book, and in not yeah, in a good way. 
Mm-mm. um not in a good way at all um with cupid um uh, when jason and nico go down to talk to cupid um cupid's a, oh, i can't say that word um cupid's, cupid's a, a meat real head um it's <laughs> a real doo-doo right i can say douchebag douchebag's radio friendly there you go there we go i it, he makes me so mad and the entire scene he is just taunting nico so come on mm-hmm. tell your secret come on love shouldn't be secretive come on and it's like first off nobody deserves to be outed especially especially not in front of the biggest dude bro in the room <laughs> like like if i if i had to choose any person on that ship to be outed by other than my suspicions for jason being gay for percy as well uh i do not think i would choose jason grace i just i just imagine jason looking like he rolled straight out of a frat house like hat backwards natty in hand any any other person on that ship probably would have been fine leo might have made a strange joke but he means well in the end and probably wouldn't if the situation was as dire as that dire is not the right word uh but like uh you know what i mean serious right right but nico is scared relentlessly afraid and of course everybody has been kind of theorizing they're like oh he's acting really weird he's really upset first off he's the only one out of the seven that have known Percy and Annabeth for longer than the like couple months. Um, mm-hmm. And he just, he made eye contact with them as they plummeted to the, to their, you know, assumed deaths. But also they're like, Oh, Nico's probably in love with Annabeth. And that's why that he acts weird around them. And he's upset right now. And his fear and just admitting it. And he immediately takes his fear and uses it in anger against Cupid. Mm-hmm. He gets peeved. He's like, are you happy now? Are you happy? And and Jason just kind of like, Jason also has a very dude bro response. He's, he's just like, like oh, he's like, all right, cool. Or, you know, because after where Nico turns to Jason, he's like, if the others find out, Jason's just like, the others find out, you have that many more people that'll back you up and unleash the fury of the gods on anybody who gives you trouble and it's like that's very sweet very nice he 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 was uh jason's response was very much i control wind and can fly i do not care if you like percy right i do too so it's good (laughs) their bromance is actually a little more um (laughs) but anyhow yeah but and i can i think using nico's um anger that he faces at love is a good jumping board for going to our next topic which is power nico it is proven that when ang- when nico is more angry he is more powerful he mm-hmm. has we see it little bit right there after the whole cupid thing and we definitely see it right in the house of hades itself he gets furious and just battles his heart out and we've seen it from nico before in the past um and it's there's this overarching theme in this book of the power power that comes 
in in need in times of need when the character needs it most it is when the power kind of takes them over and like i said nico is a prime example but i think the character we see that a lot in as well is frank yeah i mean he is he is a child of the war god so it sort of makes sense however uh we see a lot more in this book than previous things of like more of the Ares influence in him um than before or i guess mars sorry um uh whereas like in, while they're in i believe it's tartarus uh while, while they're getting like near the doors of death um they um he's sort of just consumed by the power of like uh Ares and it's just sort of commanding all of the other like dead legionnaires and is surrounded by like glowing red yeah well and we see when he re- he receives the blessing of Ares earlier in the book um and we kind of mentioned it in the recap after Nico was turned into a stalk of corn and Hazel is mortally wounded the being that is I can't remember his name that caused all this is like if you eliminate my problems and help me fix my chariot I might fix them and give you the elixir you need and Frank just goes ballistic Frank murders Mm -hmm. everything within a hundred yards of him he eradicates an entire species with with the exception of one asks his dad to like make it not uh, make it into a python so he can make it into a tire and it just first off the power that frank has in that scene is crazy and then of course the physical manifestation of the power mm-hmm. also is crazy him not him not only just like uh using his powers extremely effectively but he is so changed by that fight both mentally and physically when he grows three extra inches and sort of like uh like buffs out a little bit because i think because i I think they say he loses his like baby face and he Mm -hmm. loses his like pudginess yeah uh he also there's uh, one of the scenes describes him while he's fighting as swiping with his sword and on the backswing turning into a lion and slashing uh like in like one fluid motion uh and i thought that that was very cool we see his powers evolve so much in this he's mm-hmm. got full control over his ability to shape shift he's no longer anxious to use it or afraid to use it he just goes all out mm-hmm. frank gets the like medal of honor for just being an absolute i can't say that word um yeah absolutely rocking the show here absolute cool dude cool dude Um, (laughs) one person's powers we do see also evolve that we've kind of touched on a little bit is percy's this -hmm. is the first time we've seen percy manipulate things that aren't just water yeah he uses uh i don't know what you want to call that or if it's got a name like it's technically toxinesis i think yeah toxikinesis or something like that uh using the small trace amounts of water in the the poison to be able to like move it and mess with the uh the goddess of misery 
um, it, not only is that channel through like pure, not only hatred of misery, but hate of his surroundings and of the need to protect Annabeth. Um, it is almost entirely fueled by emotions. Well, and if you remember a couple episodes ago, we talked about how in this series, Percy is angrier than he's ever been. Mm-hmm. We've seen it back um, with the scene with the Gorgon's blood back in Son of Neptune. We see him a handful of times um, just playing the cards to his advantage and just making sure that his friends get out alive. And we definitely see it a lot when he's in Tartarus. Percy is playing very dangerous games and he is, his powers are, I'm willing to say more, I mean, obviously more powerful now than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy because it is solely out of necessity. This is not something that Percy of even a book ago would have done. Percy, pre the fall of Tartarus, would have never thought about trying to manipulate the small trace amounts in water in the poison the goddess was using to kill her. Mm-hmm. That would, I highly doubt there was, and I don't, and that scene is from Percy's perspective, right? Or is it from Annabeth? Uh, yes, that is from Percy's perspective. He doesn't even acknowledge that he's doing it. Like he, okay, let me rephrase. He knows that he's doing it, but he does not acknowledge the extent of what he is doing until Annabeth is visibly scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet again, I it's it comes straight out of necessity. The one power that we do see, um, not necessarily out of necessity in the same regard, but out well, it is out of necessity. But it, it's a more prolonged necessity. It isn't an instant necessity. Is Hazel's manipulation of the mist. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, after she meets, meets with Hecate, she tells her that you have to learn to use the mist. The only way you will survive this quest is if you learn to use the mist. The only way your friends are going to survive is if you use the mist. And even then, it's a maybe if all of them survive. Good luck. And we see Hazel kind of tempting the abilities of the mist earlier on. But then by the time she rolls up to the house of Hades, she is able to manipulate the mist that makes the giants drop into Tartarus and allows Percy and Annabeth to go free. I, I, it's, it's really wild because the mist is, starts out in this series as a force that can just like veil things that is limited in its power. However, it is like shown and implied in this book that it is a force that um, much like the gods themselves is fostered on belief. And if you truly believe what you see and what is being shown to you, that it will happen. Like she, uh, she just used the power of like manipulating it. He has fallen into Tartarus. And with that happening, they did, uh, which shows the power that people who can wield this force have and really puts Hazel like she was already fairly strong, but like, I mean, her fighting capabilities weren't really as like as high. Now they are very, very, she is like one of the top ones in that team. However, I feel like every, every time we've talked about these characters, I have said that about every one of them. So maybe all of them are 
like equal now but even on a higher level of equal <laughs> they all just keep stepping and you're like oh whoa whoa because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like like hazel just manages and yet again she it comes straight out of necessity she knows that the only way that they're going to win that battle is to make them fall into tartarus the only way percy and annabeth are getting out of that alive is if she drops them in if she drops those giants into tartarus and that's what she does mm -hmm. yeah one more use of power uh that it, it's smaller uh because piper doesn't really get as much focus in this book as she has previously however she heard um hazel talking about how in order to effectively use the mist you have to like lean into what people want to see or what people believe to be the truth uh and from that she sort of gets a, a like a level up in her charm speaking which is instead of trying to bend people to her will she tries to bend their will in line with what she wants so she play she bases off of things that are true in reality and only tells like sort of half lies and like directly stating orders uh in order to lead people that are even far out of her control in a direction that she wants uh which uh and it's it's not given as much time not given as much limelight as what hazel's gone so it's not developed as much but i think you can i think it's fair to say that she follows a very similar path with hazel albeit to a lesser extent and you know honestly i never thought of it like that and i agree um uh, piper has probably one of the the abilities that like even without like the whole demigod thing would be insanely powerful in real life mm -hmm. like she knows exactly what buttons to push to get what she wants mm -hmm. and she and she uses it to make sure they make it in and out of situations alive she uses it to the point that she can make a machine constantly running without using any extra power uh if she, I mean, and to be fair, that machine was somewhat sentient, so that's the only reason it worked. But if she was able to, like, I don't know, talk to my computer and lower my electricity bill a little bit, that would be appreciated. <laughs> oh, lands, yeah. Um, with that, I think we can go ahead and move into characters. And a lot of this yeah. episode is going to be characters. We have so many characters to talk about today. Mm -hmm. um, and We've kind of already touched on Nico, and we get a lot more of Nico in the next book. But I don't know, in seeing what Annabeth and Percy are going through in Tartarus, you get more respect for what Nico has went through. Uh, he went through Tartarus alone. Mm -hmm. And there are so many times in this book that Percy and Annabeth both say, I am. I'm upset that they are with me, but I'm glad they're here because it's the only reason I'm alive. Mm -hmm. Nico didn't have that. And Jason even points that out in that same section with about the Cupid, where he's just like, I can't imagine what he is going through. He's been isolated and alone. And he has no, he has never thought that there was anywhere for him to go. Um, he said he is more isolated than any other demigod. And it really just, I feel so bad for Nico. There was also uh, a line that Annabeth said where she was like, um, I presume my, the, the, way, the reason that all of this looks like this is because the, my demigod brain can't like, process this as well. Um, and she's like, maybe this is like, if like certain like theologians are, are correct, then everything we're looking at should look like sort of like an inside of a body and like 
terribly sort of like almost like Lovecraftian. And she's like, I think that Nico, the reason he went so insane is because he saw the truth of Tardius and Tartarus instead of like the illusion. And that's gotta be whack. Like that's, that's not only did he survive it, but he saw in like a much more horrifying light. Dude went through a lot and is still like just sort of hanging all like in his lonesome. And that says quite a lot about how he is coping with everything. Suffice to say, he's not. Right. And it's like he is fresh out of the torture of being, you know, being in Tartars, being in a jar for seven days, almost mm-hmm. dying. And then we we learn that they're that he knows exactly what they're going to have to do when they get into the house of Hades. And he's been holding on to that. He does not want to lower the spirits of the other people on the quest. He's just kind of keeping what information he knows to himself. And he is isolated. He is completely alone. Nobody else on the ship aside from Hazel trust him fully. And even Hazel's like not fully trusting him, but trusts him enough. And until the thing with Cupid happens and Jason kind of goes to Nico's side, he's like, I am with you. You've got somebody behind you the entire time. Nico doesn't have anybody. And it's just, I feel very bad for Nico. And we get more of Nico. We learn that him and Reyna are going to travel across the United States, he, or across, the country, across Europe to the U.S. via shadow travel with a giant statue of Athena and a satyr to end the yeah. war between the camps. It, dude was already like, I know, I know he's grown a lot, but dude was having a very rough time traveling with just him and Percy, uh, let alone going, like teleporting this entire length with Reyna, uh, Coach, and a gigantic statue of Athena. Yeah. But, and we can go ahead and and I think that he's he's a good character and we see a lot more he gets to narrate in the next book um which is fun um but we'll go ahead and hop to um I guess a good character to hop from here would be Jason yeah I feel like that's fair Jason is starting to get a personality Jason is now (laughs) like a a a step above a saltine cracker (laughs) yeah he is no longer milk toast but rather like pumpernickel toast. <laughs> um, Jason in this book grows, he, he himself grows a lot in this book, I think. It's the first time we're kind of seeing him acknowledge that both sides are kind of dueling in his mind. Not in his mind, but more like weighing on him. He has admitted to himself that he doesn't know that he can go back to Camp Jupiter because Camp Half-Blood feels like home to him. He doesn't miss Camp Jupiter. He misses Camp Half-Blood. Now he misses Reyna, but he does not miss Camp Jupiter as a whole. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that Jason is kind of flipping back and forth between his Greek and his Roman side. Just like the sort of gods are doing. He, is, he cannot keep himself really tethered to one side uh, for quite a while. Uh, and- I think that's probably best shown when he is uh, talking to, is it the, the northern air spirit? Is that who it is? It's, the northern, it's one of the wind spirits. Yes. Um, he's talking to uh, one of the 
the wind spirits uh austere i believe his name is um and he sort of teaches him he's like hey listen uh the reason one of the reasons i'm being so wishy-washy is because i'm stuck between my greek and my roman uh and that's for you you gotta sort of to be able to uh help out this team and lead it the way that you have been able to previously uh and because of that he realizes he has to take charge more uh and like put a firm stance on what is going to be done because they cannot afford uh to be wishy-washy right now well and i think another scene that shows it really well that jason is finally deciding which side he's going to stand on is when the when the horde of roman ghosts that nico is summoned won't obey him even though he's a creator they do not respect his his title because they see him as greek so he makes the decision you know what i am greek and he gives his title over to to frank who is a natural born leader who is ready to take control and jason being able to do that also shows a lot about his character because in mark of athena jason would not have done that um we see the development in jason through this book where he realizes like you said it is more important that he is firm on one side or another instead of just being instead of just straddling the line continuously throughout this because it could kill them Mm -hmm. is a risk that he cannot afford to take now um and another character i think we see kind of grow um into her abilities is hazel and i think piper also kind of follows in the same regard when it comes to this hey because they're both they both play important roles in this book but not to the main forefront that we see kind of the re- like the rest of the seven do mm-hmm. um but they both hazel specifically is growing and we've talked about it enough um that she's growing into this power she's growing into her abilities and she's also gaining confidence in herself like when by the time she rolls into house of hades she's like here goes nothing let's go you know and she just is able to fully throw herself into her ability to manipulate the mist that ends up in a win uh yeah i think that's um i think that's probably uh one one of the more important things about hazel is that she's able to uh sort of adapt to her situations i'd say a lot better than uh, nico has because nico went through not the same thing uh but a a similar sort of like time displaced doesn't belong doesn't feel like they belong anywhere however hazel has adapted significantly um and that's another thing too i did want to talk about that i completely forgot about and we'll get back to characters in a second but i do want to talk about this like kind of paralleling between hazel and nico and the fact they're both children of the underworld but we're seeing the difference in them of course their their powers are completely different nico's are more rooted in death and in kind of the darker sides of hades realm whereas hazel's are more of like the 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 mystical side of yeah the more fanciful Right, right, right. Like we see, obviously, with the gems and with now adding the ability to manipulate the mist into it. In that first scene of Hazel and Nico is when we see the most difference between them. Nico is trying his, like, he is so individual. 
individualistic, whereas Hazel works better with the group, but she also makes the decisions when not to, it's like she can sort out when and when not to talk to, or to bring in a group conscious. Mm -hmm. Because she can go off on her own and she can survive, but at the same time, she knows exactly when she needs the group. Whereas Nico just refuses to acknowledge the group not refuses to acknowledge it's a little much on him but he would rather not reach out to the group at all yeah and hazel's also just the like i said the lighter side of hades kind of realm or pluto's realm Mm -hmm. um but yeah and i i think that that is i think it's actually a fun uh difference to show there whereas a lot of the sort of gods are uh more like brutal and or hostile uh in their roman forms uh the sort of difference here in the like the like chthonic gods such as hades is very is very strange very like alien from that where that like seems to be a lot more like maybe kind isn't the right word um but he seems to be a lot softer uh and a lot less sort of involved with the as you said darker elements of his pantheon And I think this, we see, and I'm going to, I'm going to use this to flip into our next character, which is going to be Frank. We see that Ares and Mars have been arguing in Frank's head for a majority of this novel. He is, he's acknowledging that they have been fighting in his head since the, since the camps officially went to war. He is, because of course, both sides are kind of praying to Ares and it is stressing him out or to Mars and it's stressing frank out but in the scene when he receives the blessing from mars he just yells at the voices in his head he's shut up no i'm in control i'm doing this you guys don't have you are going to turn this thing into a snake and that's it you're done um and he's like he's the outside of hazel he's one of two characters that is fully on one you know he is fully on one side of the aisle so it's very interesting that Ares is in his head and not just Mars. But I think, yeah. God. No, you no. don't. I was going to say, I also just kind of wanted to wonder if this is going on in every child of Ares slash Mars's head. Because um, it, it, it wasn't quite clear um, if that, like, if. Because if that's the case, if you constantly have, even if it's just one of the one of the two parents there chatting in your head, I can see why Clarice is so like angry all the time. Like, if I had someone constantly yelling in my head, not just like not just like orders or telling me what to do, just but just in general, I would not be in a good mood. Well, Um, and I I I don't know. I thought it was just Frank solely because he's the only one that we've seen have the blessing. That's that's fair. But granted, it was before the blessing that he could do this. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It might, it might, I I think it might just be because he is the only child of Mars that is sort of helping with uh like like Greek, like Ares' side. So maybe it's because he is split between two, not as much, but just by nature of him being like helping mm-hmm. person, he is uh, splitting himself. Well, and I think another thing, too, um, about Frank is we see him kind of come into his his own identity. 
first off, he is very uncomfortable at the fact that he is he is grown, that he is no longer yes. pudgy. He hates it. He's mad. But we'd see him kind of earn his confidence in himself. He no longer doubts his abilities. And like we said earlier, when it came when we were talking about power, he doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Battle is now just an instinct of his. He doesn't have to think about switching into his, you know, using his familial power or his, you know, abilities in general. He just does it. He does it at ease, which I think is a big development for Frank. Mm -hmm. It is. He he has certainly moved quite a lot since uh, since Son of Neptune. Uh, I love Frank. Frank's my favorite character. Frank's Frank's very fun. He's he's very fun. Um, But I think that's all for our characters because we had percy wrote down but we have talked about percy yeah we've, we've and we'll talk about percy next book too um so we'll go ahead and head over to mvps and lvps yeah lvp first uh, oh i thought about my mvp but i did not think about my lvp uh so it's kind of it's kind of funny because they actually um at one point somebody does call themselves the lvp in the book like specifically using the term lvp and i can't remember who it was uh i believe it was frank no i know it was frank actually probably um, but he's not uh he's he's not by any means but he did call himself that i just i thought that'd be funny to mention um i think my lvp is gonna be piper i mean she she did her best um but she got so very little like screen time in this uh she only had like one big fight and even then it was it was like kind of tame compared to the rest of the things um but i mean not not to say she doesn't do her own not to say that i don't like her character i just think that she hasn't done much plus uh still kind of on edge about how loosely she used her charm speak before this uh kind of kind of just kind of weird uh so because of that lvp reasonable my LVP is going to be Coach Hedge. Okay, okay. Because he doesn't do much. But <sighs> knock up a wind spirit, apparently. <laughs> That's fair. And I'm not going to ask how it happened. It was probably a messy affair. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, does, he doesn't do much. He does get some character development um which which i enjoy um but yeah i i think i agree he doesn't really he's he's not that important he just doesn't do um, a whole lot for somebody who's supposed to be protecting these kids these kids get real close to dying way too many times for him to yeah. be able to claim himself the protector of these kids <laughs> um for my mvp i don't want to steal yours uh, but no, I feel like I have, a, I have a handful, so it's fine. You have a handful. Okay. I then I'm fine with saying my MVP is Annabeth. Oh, um, okay. That's reasonable. She was like number two. So you're good. Uh, Annabeth is using every single ounce of her cunning in this. Um, and I will say she's still only pretty her hubris in this. In fact, I would say possibly more than uh, in last book if that's possible uh but she every single monster that she encounters she comes up with a different i don't want to say harebrained scheme but like very off the cuff quick uh sort of like 
oh, we're tourists. We're doing the Tartarus tour. Uh, might we take a picture with you and your favorite child, Nyx? She is constantly coming up with fun schemes and ideas to do things. And I'll say if Annabeth went down there alone, I feel like she may have been, I'd give her 50-50 on being able to get through. If Percy went down there, it's like it's like an 80-20 that he is not making it out of there. Yeah, Annabeth, Annabeth grows so much as a character in this book alone. She is more grounded in her humanity, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. This is the first time we see her genuinely get scared. This is the first time we see her break. She is, and while she does play into her hubris a little bit in this book, like you said, at the same time, she is more grounded of a character that we've seen before. She is so scared and isn't, and I don't know if it's just because her narration style, but we really didn't get this in Mark of Athena. She just emits flat out when she's afraid. We see her break down so many times. It just, she is so overwhelmed that she just can't keep up this I am, I am, you know, all powerful. She can't keep it up anymore. And it's completely reasonable. And her, she just, she's an amazing character in this book. So yes. (laughs) Uh, Oddly enough, my MVP is going to be Raina. Yeah, I that was the other person I was thinking of. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was between Annabeth, Raina, and Frank. Uh, they're, they're very important players in this book. Yes, but Raina, first off, she is willing to give up everything she knows if it means saving this quest and maybe preventing this war. She sacrifices her Pegasus. Yeah, they kind of just dropped that one on us. Yeah, they they just sprinkle in that she had to murder her, like, trusted pet. And it's just like, she she will not stop to do what is, she will not stop as long as it means doing what is most important. And we learn that she is, through Jason, we've learned that she puts a lot of her past self kind of locked in the box. Like, it's not, she doesn't acknowledge it. She is only Raina creator of camp jupiter she is only this powerful upfront person and we see her willing to sacrifice that to make sure that she can save at least a couple people mm-hmm. so yeah i reina reina only doesn't even speak in the she speaks at the very end of this book yes but has so much there power. is the, she does a lot behind the scenes uh kind of does what the the seven did on her own yep yeah really (laughs) she Mm -hmm. does what took the seven two books to do it took reina one day she's like yeah let's go come on she Um, also did not have to like scavenge parts and wasn't it chased as much because she was only one person but still did do quite a lot it is true um but i think that is it for this week's episode of the classroom uh next, next week we will be reading blood of olympus the final book this will be the final book of our percy jackson series as well we're not going to jump into trials of apollo that'll be a whole lot so we're just not going to do that but um if you are listening to us on u92 good for you hop on over to spotify apple podcasts wherever you happen to get your podcasts and hop in and listen to us um if you are listening to us on one of those various platforms of podcasting 
then you can always listen to us on u92themoose.com um, uh, at 11 a.m. on Fridays. I forgot what time we went live. <laughs> um, and you can listen to this episode through. That'll be, It'll be released at the same time. So how about it? Yeah. Uh, but like I said, you can always hop over and listen to all of our other episodes on like those podcasting platforms. Or of course, listen to some of our friends at the station on U92. Also, if you like what we do, uh, feel free to drop us a review on like iTunes or something like that. Uh, always helps. Uh, if you if you like the stuff, we'd really appreciate it. Absolutely, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, that's it for this week. We will catch you guys next week and have a good one. Adios. Um, we have the scene. Where Jason is dreaming. One second, Naomi's putting her foot in my water. Get out! Naomi. She had her foot in my glass of water. Naomi. Sorry. Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm so mad. Anyway. <laughs>